Welcome to the well. I am Brandon Eshens. And I am Anson Mount. Uh, and what have you been up to, my friend? You know that you're busy. I have been busy uh, with being a father. Um, we're sort of in that stage where, you know, she's starting to understand sequences. Explain that. What do you mean explain uh, to the non-parents out there? Yeah. So for instance, uh, she's memorized her bedtime routine. So she knows when we move from putting on pajamas to getting the stuffed animals so she can pretend to brush their teeth, which means then it's then time for her to brush her teeth. And then we get into the rocking chair for story time. And then last night I was putting her to bed and I turned around and she had my reading glasses in her hand and were handing them to me. Wow. I know, right? And wow. And she's also, it, it's what's wild about being a parent, particularly at this stage of development, is seeing the world through fresh eyes, mm-hmm. their fresh eyes, and realizing how weird the world actually is. So, for instance, uh, Dara took Clover to, uh, to the Target the other day, and that's where we get a lot of her, her toy, toys, or is on the Toy Isla Target. And they were walking through the toy aisle and Clover's first time she did this, she suddenly, she pointed, she saw there were some of the toys there that we had got bought in her, right? So she sees these toys and she points at them and goes, "Eh," and then turns to Dara and clearly she's thinking, what are my toys doing? Hey, Dara tries to explain, well, those aren't really your, like we have toys that are exactly like those that, we bought at this store, which has the right to distribute these toys in the United States, but really the intellectual property is owned by Hasbro. You know, she doesn't get any of that. Right? No, I, I, no one gets that. <laughs> so she's ready to go on with her shopping, and, and Clover stops her and is like, eh, and tries to reach for the toys because she's like, we can't leave these here. <laughs> we can't leave my toys. <laughs> we got to take them home. So, yeah. So, and when you think about that, 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 that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But all this other stuff is just, man, we're complicated species. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's been a lot of, of fun uh, rediscovering the world with her. That's awesome. That's beautiful. I now know what you mean by sequence recognition and understanding like this leads to this. And that's part of that whole process that leads to where we all are right now as old as old people is that you just start assuming things, you know, oh, yeah. like, well, naturally this means this, and this is followed by this. Cause it always has been. And it's interesting to watch someone wire those together for the first time, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not careful, uh, not that anyone can control this, you end up wiring things together weirdly, you know, and like, it's, that's why it's funny to study animal behavior because they're a lot less complicated. And I always tell the story about a guy who had a cat for the very first time and I brought it home from the shelter. It was hungry. It was kind of, it was kind of the, the process of getting the cat fed for the first time was a bit, you know, uh, spastic and uh, rushed. So he like opens the cabinet where the cat food is in. The cat's impatient for the food, bonks the cat in the head with the cabinet door. And now the cat runs over to the bowl. I know this is where the food goes. And he's like, God, calm down, get out of the way. And then he kind of as he's scooping the food, it falls off the spoon, lands on the cat's head, rolls off the cat's head into this bowl. Okay. I think you know where I'm going with this. So that's how you're fed. That's how cats, that's how this cat 
was like, this is, this is how the feeding happens. So now when it's time for food, he runs in front of the cabinet with his head down like this, like, do it. <laughs> Hit me. Hit me. Bonk. Now. All right. Now drop it on my head. Yes. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> well, you know, this is probably around the same developmental stage when, you know, going back to our episode about synesthesia, where a lot they, of those connections get laid, right? That is exactly what I was going to do next. Right. And if you want to conduct an experiment, not that you should do this. Give her colored blocks that are all one color. <laughs> all, all the letters are one, like all green. And see if right. she sees all green letters from now on. If you're confused about what we're talking about, go back and listen to the episode, uh, parts one and two of our episode with Melissa McCracken, who is a painter who has synesthesia and paints uh, what she sees when she listens to music. And uh, yeah, there's a lot in there about, it becomes an episode about brain development and how you automatically wire things together, whether they're supposed to be wired together or not. Yeah. yeah. it's. A, I, I really like that episode. You did a bang up job on that. Thank you, man. Still my favorite, I think. And it, uh, it, it features our ne'er-do-well college friend, Chance, who's now a neurologist. Yeah, our ne'er-do-well who's also a neurologist, so I don't know if we can keep calling him that. But yeah, he, and he's great, and he is of no, he's great, and he's of also no help at all in that episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember, was it, when you, you were asking him, so what do you, you know, what do you do as a neurologist? And he was like, not much. <laughs> well, he used to he used to describe it as you know. When other people ask him, "What do you do as a neurologist?" and I have to do my chance impression. Now it's like you know, and like your grandfather, or grandmother has a stroke or something, and then that guy comes in and he says, "All right, she's had a stroke, and we got to wait and see. You know, we're going to monitor and see what happens." That's what I do. <laughs> we're going to watch and see what happens. There's not much you can do. That's the problem with being a, a yeah. neurologist. And there's not much intervention you can do. You know, it's got to be right. something traumatic, and that's for a brain surgeon. You know, I am running around a lot. I just came back from Minnesota. I was in Minnesota for two weeks. Ah, yeah, we went up to we took the family up to Rainy Lake, which is one of the lakes up in uh, Boundary Waters, northern Minnesota. And you know, I love that place. And this time is not the whole family, but fifteen people on a houseboat, which is like I've never been on one of those things before. It's basically a floating RV. It has, this one had a hot tub on the roof <laughs> and a slide. So you could go on the, take a hot tub and then slide off into the cold lake water, climb back up and do it again. Um, it was fabulous. It was amazing. There was only one nightmarish aspect. Of it. it was all like paradise until the sun went down. And then a horde plague of mosquitoes, the likes of which I have never seen before in my life descends <laughs> upon the houseboat and then it became a weird kind of family bonding thing where it was like let's all kill mosquitoes for the next three hours as a team and it was like <laughs> it was like space invaders you know like they come boop boop it just and that, it was so gross by the end i don't know how they keep these things clean because by the end of the trip every six inches inside of that houseboat just was splatter marks Buttermarks, just dead mosquitoes everywhere. It was unreal. Imagine some blood. 
And some blood. Oh yeah, that was when we knew that we had gotten one that had, you know, like it was. Yeah, it was a weird way. It was like scoring points. Like those were worth more. <laughs> you know, like Space Invaders. You know, there was the the low hanging was like, eh, he hadn't done anything yet. Ah, that bastard already got somebody. Die. You know, gotcha. We, we have this thing in the south where we we think that we got the worst skeeter problem in the world. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. There are places in Alaska where you can die. If you don't have mosquito netting. Can you imagine? He will suck you dry. Imagine that being exsanguinated by just hundreds and hundreds of little mosquitoes. <laughs> I, I know that my friend Chuck, who uh, does camera work around, you know, for Discovery and BBC and stuff like that, he was doing a job that they were doing a documentary thing on the Panama Canal. So he was in Panama. Yeah. By the way, and, the re- and you, anyone knows their history remembers the reason they had to keep stopping construction on the Panama Canal is because everyone kept getting yellow fever, I think. Everyone was dying because there were no workers to work in the pandemic, and it was because of the mosquitoes. And that leads to the largest, you know, full-scale warfare against mosquito population that the world has ever conducted. But uh, Chuck was down there to film this, and he was driving along in his car. They're out in the jungle. Car stops. Somebody comes back to ask him a question. He rolls down the window. His arm is on the, uh, you know, edge of the window. He's like, yes, and he... They just say a few words. They toss for a second. He looks down. And at first he thinks, my arm isn't that hairy. <laughs> it was just like, just hundreds and hundreds of mosquitoes all lined up on his arm already. And he was like, ah! you know, it gives you some idea of the mosquito problem down there. Yeah. But we are here for a, we're here for a drop. You want to do the drop spiel? Yeah, uh, sure. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, the drop is a segment we do, uh, that is, uh, they're, they're not our normal episodes Our normal episodes are, um, about a particular subject or guests. Usually, uh, you can, if you want to hear those, it's great to start at the beginning of our podcast and work your way forward. Uh, but no, this is a segment that we do occasionally where Brandon and I, we, these are conversations we would normally have anyways. And what we do is we talk about everything that we've been seeing, listening to, reading, uh, that we thought we we would like to share with you uh, as recommendations for consumables. And uh, yeah, I guess that's the way to put it. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, yeah, so without further ado, uh, let's let's get on with uh, we're we're doing a, a one subject drop this time, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we, we both independently discovered this show on Netflix called Beef. You started this. Me? Yeah. Okay, uh, you're the one who backed into me like a psycho. You're the one that flipped me off all roided out and sh- Hey! Are you guys leaving or are you just gonna sit there? What'd you say? What'd you say? Say it again! I dare you to say it again! Was it me that texted you or you texted me? I think I texted you. You texted me. Yeah, yeah, and I, because I was just, I mean, my my wife and I, I wasn't sure. My wife wanted to watch it. I was like, okay, and then immediately sucked in, and I knew it was good. And then when I got to the ending, I was like, oh, this is, I've never seen anything like this. Um, it may have actually had that thought before the ending, but but the ending just really blew me away, and I immediately texted Brandon, because I was like, he has to watch this, and he'd already seen it. So, yeah, what was your impression? It starts off with a pretty simple premise. 
And the first couple of episodes are just like a house on fire. I just loved it. I loved, I liked all of it. I did feel like it was starting to get into this go in the direction that a lot of episodic television goes into, which feels becoming a little twistier than was really necessary. So I kind of, but I still liked it. It was still good, but it also felt like, okay, but you know, what started out as really original starting to feel a little more familiar. That's a better way. That's a better way to put it. And then that last episode and it was almost like an anti everything I'd seen up until that time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, everything goes down the same hole. This didn't. And I don't know. Are we going to spoil it? We're recommending it. So that's not sure we should spoil it, but I'll, I'll say this. I got to the ending of the penultimate episode. And I thought to myself, wait, how can there be another episode? (laughs) How Mm -hmm. can you, how can you possibly number one, go beyond this and number two, do better than this. And they did. I was like, oh, that's the perfect. I have never seen a show that dares to question its own premise at the very last episode. You know, to set you up like that and take you kind of with them. And then at the last episode, kind of take this almost philosophical, (laughs) you know, like, well, hold on. Hold on a second. Maybe not. (laughs) <laughs> but maybe we should work backwards for a second and at least tell people what this show is about. So well, that's true, right? Nah. So, <laughs> so it is, this is a show, first of all, it's helmed by, it's uh, the leads are Stephen Young and Ali Wong, and who are both actually oh, good. And it's about two people who find each other, who, two people who are, for completely different reasons, of their own, and of their own, making uh they find themselves in places in their life where they're deeply unhappy a chance encounter turns these people into each other's nemesis and they they start expressing their frustration at life at each other so they sort of become the cipher for each other's angst and they develop this weird relationship yeah it's a relationship based on their their mutual hate of one another and my original thought is oh i know where this is going they're gonna fall in (laughs) no 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 it doesn't go down any of the paths that i expected it to and at the same time it makes you laugh and it and it makes your heart hurt Mm -hmm. um pretty much every episode uh that's what i really loved about it before I before ever talking about the ending mm-hmm. I thought it was consistent throughout well very well cast Maria Bello is also in it um and and man Ali Wong it's holy cow I knew she was a talented successful comedian I had no idea that she was an actor and quite a good one I would want to go back circle back to the point because I think I may have made it sound like um that there were some problems with it. You liked every single episode. I just started to feel like I've been here before. Like, okay, this is good, but I'm not surprised anymore. Uh, which is a common feeling for me. So that's not a diss. That's not a criticism. There, there, there is a you know, there's there's an altered reality uh, sequence in the last episode. I'm not giving really too much away here. 
but there's an, there's a there's an altered reality sequence that that is is handled in a way I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Right, I and agree. in a way that is so much simpler than maybe anything I've seen before trying to do that same thing. Totally, I agree. It, it, it so much it, is left up to the performances and the editing. It's really yeah. just performance and edit. It's just sort of little misdirected. Uh, they're not fake outs, but it just you just do the editing and the writing. They do a very good job of uh, recreating that sense of uh, time slippage that happens uh, on uh, in altered realities, and it doesn't get tempted to go down that oh isn't it all weird and psychedelic and colorful and surreal which is where most where most filmmakers go it's strictly it's all emotional it, it allows them to achieve a state of pure empathy mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and and how transformative that that can be mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i have to ask are you wearing nail polish right now i am why uh, because Sharon ran out of fingernails to test her nail polish on. She's mixing <laughs> colors. So uh, she had already painted every one of her nails a different color, and she wasn't happy yet. So <laughs> uh, these are the three, and I'm pretty sure that this one is the winner. <laughs> You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. Very confident. It's funny. This was days ago, and I keep forgetting it's there. And uh, yesterday, I went on a on a pizza tour in Brooklyn, uh, and and I'm, every occasion they'd be talking to somebody, and gesturing, and so they'd be like, blah, 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 blah. "All right, oh well." Yes, I'm wearing nail polish, and I. Well, I tell you what else I appreciate about Beef is that it was set very specifically, not just in Los Angeles but in the Asian American community in Los Angeles, which the writer, director, the actors, they know that community very well. I, and I knew very little about that community. It's a, it's a very specific subset of the LAC, right? Uh, and, I, and I really appreciated that I was able to learn about mm-hmm. that community while I was watching the show and it and it played into it quite well. I, 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 I got to tell you, and it it it, you know, four or five years ago. First of all, the show would not have been made about four or five six years ago. Just wouldn't. And or the you know the obvious note would be do they have to be Asian? You know that would be that would be you know because because the the the. You know, the, these companies are run by people who have business degrees, right? And for some reason, when they come in to the business, they somehow think that that magically bestows upon them a knowledge of story structure <laughs> and entertainment and what works and and the one of the biggest bullshit presumptions in the industry is that people want to watch what they're familiar with. What? That's never made any sense. If I wanted to 
if I wanted to engage with something that was familiar to me, I'd turn off the freaking TV and turn to the people in the living room with me. Right. I, don't wanna, I don't want to talk to those people. <laughs> hey, right. I want to have an experience outside of my own. That's kind of the point. Right. But you know better than me that uh, the same people uh, base everything on precedent. So... You know, that's why there's that joke that even people outside the industry are familiar with. You know, it's like this movie, cross with this movie. You have two successful movies that everyone knows, they all like, so they're going to like this new version, which is this times this other thing, like the joke and the player, yeah. you know? Right. Um, and, um, yet, and yet the similarity between those things, particularly in terms of race and, and ethnicity and culture, is they're all the same. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> So what do you what do you have to draw upon for precedence that is going to take you outside of the box? Not a lot, right? Well, and that's but that's why they had to wait until Crazy Rich Asians, right? And a few others. I think that was the main one that went blockbuster, and then finally, these graph paper brained accountants at the studios are like, "Oh, okay, I guess people will watch that kind of thing." But it's got to start the same people and be about the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is also the reason why Dua was able to make The Harvest. He couldn't have made that four or five years ago. He was trying four or five years ago to make that movie. He wanted to make a film about Hmong Americans, that specific sub-Asian community. Yeah, and very, he, spe- and, very specific. Yeah, And when he brought producers on, other Asian producers, even they were like, can't we make this about Vietnamese <laughs> or Chinese people can't we make this about a Chinese family instead you know that's how ingrained this is and in, right. in producers right. minds you know and you know kudos to him for being like no this is you know there's never been uh, a long story told ever it's time let's do one and you got it done you know hats off to him so I got an interesting invitation from Bilga Okay. Bill Gabiri, the film critic, mm-hmm. a friend of ours. Uh, I asked him if I would, could possibly get a sneak peek at Oppenheimer. Oh. And he has seen it somehow. Well, because he's a critic, he's seen it five times already. And so I, this is all a long way of saying, I'm going to the world premiere tomorrow of Oppenheimer oh. at, the AM, at the AMC IMAX here in New well, York. Well, I guess there are available seats now. Uh, why? Oh. <laughs> what? Why? I don't get it. Is something happening? Is there something happening in your world that I'm not aware of? <laughs> You're taking Cillian Murphy's seat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, I'm gonna, in fact, I'm gonna, it's going to have his name you know, printed out and taped to the seat. That's the one I'm going to sit in. Bill got a great idea for uh, a way to promote the film that, of course, nobody tried to do or follow up on but I thought it was funny um, hire like a strong man like world's strongest man to see if he could bench press the print for Oppenheimer <laughs> how long is it the movie is like two and a half hours okay okay that's not too bad no but it's on 70 minutes but it's on IMAX have you yeah. seen these platters the platter being the thing that no. that's on uh, it's the size of this room. Uh, oh my God. Once it's all spliced together, 
Um, it's something like, I'm probably get the number, I'll get the number wrong, but it looks to be like eight feet wide, maybe more, probably yeah. more. And I think it weighs something like 400 pounds or something like that. What? Maybe more. I don't know. Edit note. The IMAX film prints for Oppenheimer were 11 miles long and weighed 600 pounds. Uh, 35 millimeter film, which everybody knows what that looks like for most old people. Um, and IMAX is, so there's 70 millimeter and IMAX is even larger than that. It's the biggest camera format. Has IMAX not moved to digital projectors? Um, there is an IMAX digital format, but it's Christopher Nolan and he is keeping, he wants to project real film yes he's keeping film alive i talked to bilga about it he was like oh when he first saw it he texted me he was like oh it's incredible you're gonna love it it's mostly just scientists talking <laughs> and i was like <laughs> yeah i was like but in imax so <laughs> and this is a, probably the most one of the most important moments in science history and it hasn't been told certainly not at this scale Certainly not 400 pounds worth of it. <laughs> it's also the heaviest. <laughs> Why didn't they just say that in the promotions? The heaviest film ever. This is the heaviest film ever made, man. That's, oh man, yeah. God, how could they miss that? I didn't get on the phone. Call Nolan. Um, you, miss, you miss an obvious one here, buddy. Um, well, we're reaching the end of our drop. We've talked about beef. We've talked about what we did over the summer. We've talked about the world's heaviest film. And I'm going to end it with an article. Sorry, I'm laughing. I don't even know how to read this without blowing it. Uh, it's from an article conducted by researchers at the University College London. Very short. In this experiment... We manipulated what men believed about their own penis sizes relative to those of others. We gave them false information, stating that the average penis size was larger than it is, reasoning that these males would feel that their own penises were smaller than the average. These men were compared to other men who were told that the average penis size was smaller than the true average. We then asked both groups of men to rate how much they would like to own a sports car. <laughs> These facts and questions were buried among other information so as to mask our hypothesis from the participants. We found that males, and males over 30 in particular, rated sports cars as much more desirable when they were made to feel that they had a small penis. So, what we all suspected has now been recorded in the annals of science. <laughs> what possible scientific application <laughs> would this be good for? Who came up with this? How much did you know? We justified this for the funding it must have required. It doesn't say somebody with a small penis. <laughs> <laughs> or I was going to say women. <laughs> Women researchers like you know what I bet probably over martinis like you know what I bet like well let's let's do our let's do a study and make and see if we can prove what we already think but that's confirmation bias that's not science yeah we're calling into question the veracity and reliability of this entire report now 
The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Theme music written by Jonathan Myberg and performed by Brandon Edgens. Until next time, have a good time.